On this electrifying episode of StarPod Log, we consider the contents of StarLog magazine from 1981 in issues 43 and 44. Lou, Max, and Rich reminisce on what it was like to collect trading cards when they were kids. Tony Barletta and Rodney Rodas discuss the Popeye musical. Shocking John gives us the lowdown on scanners. Bert Bruce provides info on altered states. Mark Newbold talks about the accomplishments of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back producer Gary Kurtz. Cliff Easley and Aubrey Stevens tell us about the Society for Creative Anachronism and the fantastic convention that celebrates the SCA ShadowCon. Steve Jonas and Michael Bailey discuss the impact that Superman made on comic books in the 1940s. Plus, The Incredible Hulk, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, and more on this episode of Starpod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey, my little Georgia Peach. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine or read it for free online at archive.org. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. BotCon, the Transformers Convention, will be held August 27th and 28th, Nashville, Tennessee. Celebrating all things Transformers and and robots like that. It sounds very cool. We've never been to this one. It's a traveling convention, so it's the first time coming to Nashville, so we're going to check it out. And of course, the grandest of them all, Dragon Con. We'll be invading Atlanta on September 1st through the 5th. Four panels set up for us. Two panels on the Trek track and two panels on the comic book track. I am super excited that I will be moderating a panel interviewing Wendy and Richard Peeney of ElfQuest fame and also the creators of the new Dune comic book series. And we're going to be in the Dragon Con Parade again. Lots of exciting activities at Dragon Con. And they're still having the bunny hutch again. They've got all the photo shoots. We're going to the Star Trek photo shoot again. Lots of stuff happening. And we definitely are going to be going to ShadowCon. We actually interview some of the people who put on ShadowCon later on in this episode. It's held in Memphis, Tennessee, January 7th and 8th. We went to that one back in 2020, and it was a lot of fun. That It's another fan-run con, and it actually started at a party at someone's house and just grew. 
been going on for decades. One of our favorite conventions to attend in Memphis. Starlog Magazine, issue number 43, February 1981. Log Entries, Latest News from the Worlds of Science Fiction. Baker departs. Canine gets fired. I'm quitting while I'm at the top, says actor Tom Baker. There's nothing more I can do but repetition. With those words, Baker hangs up his floppy hat and flowing scarf after seven years of traversing time and space as the doctor, a role which he held longer than any of his predecessors in the 16-year history of Doctor Who. John Pertwee played number three for five years, and Patrick Troughton, number two, and William Hartnell, number one, both cavorted through the dimensions for three years. The whole change of pace. Not only is the doctor going away, the one that had still to this day is the reigning king of holding on to the title for the longest period, but also they're doing away with canine. Tom Baker was the most popular doctor. Uh, for a long time, I really thought he was the only one. Like when I turned it to Doctor Who, and if he wasn't on it, I thought it wasn't Doctor Who. It must be another show. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Moments before the Earth is leveled to make way for an intergalactic freeway, Arthur Dent is plucked off the planet by Ford Prefect, an interstellar traveler who was researching for a revised edition of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. To this day, this Douglas Adams classic is popular. It's always been a popular book. Uh, most people like the, the humor, which, which just keeps getting quoted all the time. Swamp Thing Editor Joe Orlando had no idea Swamp Thing was going to become one of the most talked-about horror comics to ever see print. Even if he did, it's safe to assume he never, never imagined seeing it as a movie. Yeah, when we think of early DC comic movies, oftentimes this gets missed. But because the comic book series was so popular, it was a shoe-in to have a major motion picture adaption. This is Mark Newbold from Star Wars Insider Magazine and Fanthatracks.com. So this is a look at Starlog issue 43 and the announcement that Gary Kurtz was going to leave his role as producer of the Star Wars series with the third film on its way. He would not be a part of it. It's interesting to look back now and see how that was viewed because Kurtz was such a key part of Star Wars and Empire. He'd worked with Lucas on American Graffiti, so they'd got a, a relationship, a working relationship. But as they explain here, he produced two popular science fiction films but decided to leave his post. Kurtz was still apparently going to serve as a production consultant and Howard Kazanjian, who'd just worked on Raiders with Lucas was stepping in to produce Revenge of the Jedi. That gives you an idea of when this magazine was coming out. He spoke about that at the 38th World Science Fiction Convention in Boston. One of the reasons I'm not producing myself this time is that I have other commitments to work on, he said. It's been seven years now without a holiday, without a break of any kind. So so Kurtz was saying that just needed a break, needed to get away, take some time out, which seems crazy given that Star Wars and Empire were at that point, number one and number three, I believe, in the biggest movies of all time. He'd been involved in every aspect of the filmmaking, 
and he broke it down and explained those parts. It's usually about nine months of pre-production, six months of principal photography, nine months of post-production now. The special effects work fits into the middle of that. It starts in preparation and goes right through principal photography, and it's completed right at the end of post-production. We were shooting miniature elements for Empire up to a month before the film came out. I was involved throughout the entire process. Well, yeah, we know this, don't we? There was those final shots of the Rebel fleet weren't even completed for the premiere. I think they were added afterwards, the ones that we see these days. Doing a picture like this is more or less like being a general in the army, standing on top of a hill looking at the battle through field glasses rather than being the lieutenant who patrols there in the thick of everything, which is the way a small film is done. With small films, it's sometimes more pleasurable to actually be involved in production than it is on a big project. We've had over 700 people work on Star Wars and Empire. And as for Jedi, I'll be involved in production somewhat through the course of the third film, and after that, we'll just have to take each film one at a time. So at this point in time, it's announced that he's leaving, but Kurtz is saying very publicly he's still going to be involved in Return of the Jedi. What became Return of the Jedi? But Kurtz doesn't plan to spend a great deal of time relaxing. He's several projects of his own, including the already announced fantasy film that he'll be doing with Jim Henson. This is fascinating. This is almost like first reveal. It's called Dark Crystal, and we're going to start shooting next spring or summer, depending on their work schedule. I'll be producing with Jim Henson, and Jim and Frank Oz, the voice of Yoda, are co-directing. It's a classic fantasy film, a sort of a Greek myth tradition using creatures, but the creatures are more serious than the Muppets. And then other work, he explains he's working on fantasy films of his own. Possibly Return to Was might have been one of them, he doesn't overtly say it, but... He's talking about how he needs the time to work with writers during the next year and a half. So the public face of this is that Kurtz is expanding to do his own stuff out of the shadow of Lucas and that maybe he will still be involved. He's talking about an involvement in Return of the Jedi, which, again, we know didn't come to pass. He also expresses the desire to work on smaller productions than the Star Wars films with more modest budgets, yet fantasy calls for more effects work than other kinds of films. This is the question posed by the writer. Won't each succeeding film have to be more spectacular with more effects and bigger budgets? Not necessarily, says Kurtz. That's one of the reasons for the whole development of ILM, to try to develop new technology for special effects that made it reasonable. Once the tech is available, the cost factor comes down. Or if it doesn't come down, at least it stays at the same level. You get better quality for no less time or money, but certainly better than it would have been, even with Star Wars. Doing Star Wars effects the old way would have taken not only three times as long, but would have probably been twice as expensive. Even though we spent a lot more money on equipment for Empire, there are certain kinds of science fiction films that can now be made very inexpensively in very little time using some of the new techniques, which is very encouraging. I'd like to see more of them. So he's talking about, obviously, the leaps that ILM had made. We've seen this in the recent Light and Magic documentary on Disney+, Plus, way pre-digital. So he's still talking optical visual effects. But, very clearly, the plan is for ILM to be providing visual effects for Gary Kurtz Productions. So it feels, it reads more like a fork in the road, more like they're wanting their own autonomy to a degree. Kurtz wants to make his films and Jordan wants to make his films. And that this, the read of this is that it feels like an amicable parting of the ways. Nothing, nothing negative yet. Gary wants a holiday and he wants to do his own films. It's a very small community on the technical side, he adds. There's a lot of interchange of technology and development. We built the first motion control camera for Star Wars and the Close Encounters people came over, looked at it and built theirs based on that design and made it better. We see that in Lion Magic. And when we built our second camera at the end of Star Wars, we went over and looked at Close Encounters camera and built a better one yet. And that continues now. The Disney people who built the cameras for the Black Hole came up and looked at ours. There's a lot of shared technology. So that's fascinating and that really does fold into, what, again, what we've just seen on Light and Magic, that there was a very cooperative feel and that people were using each other's tech purely to advance the craft of making these visual effects. Kurtz talks about how excited he is for Revenge of the Jedi. 
in terms of the visual effect. I'm not sure that this will be ready in time for the third movie, but we do have a computer division working on the whole idea, not only in special effects, but in sound recording and sound mixing, making a completely compatible system. Well, again, that's something that we saw in Lights and Magic. We saw Edit Droid, and we saw all of the different computerised technical options that they had to edit and to do sound. So fascinating that Kurtz is talking about this so early on. But he isn't completely sold on the idea of letting computers do all the work. Most of the problems with computer technology right now is the fact that entering the information into the computer is so time-consuming, it's easier to do it manually. A computer can take over a lot of manual functions and do them much more quickly than a human can, but on the intelligence side, the thinking about what's best, that's still better done manually. He says, we've worked on the idea of some spaceship movements of how the ship moves in the shot that goes from lower left to upper right and comes towards the camera. Generally, the actual programming of the movements of the ship and the camera is done much more easily, manually, because you're judging the movement as you go. If it's done automatically, you get a perfect parabolic arc, for example. It just wouldn't look right, so there are some human frailties involved that makes it better. We're continually building equipment and experimenting all the time. He feels like he was involved in the process of getting these visual effects organised and that there's more of an involvement of Kurtz in ILM than perhaps publicly we've realised. But he doesn't just support fantasy films. I'd like to think that people who always wanted to make fantasy, space fantasy films will now have that opportunity. I don't like to see what happens when some of the people who have no interest in science fiction at all just decide to make a film because Star Wars was popular. It's one of the reasons that they aren't very good. Great point. We had a lot of films of that ilk come out after Star Wars, and yeah, some of them were not the best. I hope with Empire now being reasonably popular, reasonably popular, that sci-fi will take its place as just another genre to work in. If you have a good story and it's a science fiction story, you can make it. If it's not a science fiction story, then you can still make it. I think that more science fiction writers are working on projects and that there is more interest in science fiction and fantasy-orientated projects, which is good, as long as they're the right kind of things to be made. Unfortunately, they make a lot of mistakes. Did you see The Martian Chronicles? Yeah, Rock Hudson, if I remember, was in The Martian Chronicles and it had its moments. But he doesn't classify Star Wars as science fiction. I think it's more of a fantasy fairy tale than pure science fiction. This is something George had always said, space fantasy. I think the general media has a tendency to divide films into very limited categories. The exhibitors do also. Either it's a western or it's science fiction or it's something else. And none of those categories seem to hold all of the films that they've put into them. As far as the general public is concerned, because it has spaceships in it, it's science fiction. I think it's okay to classify Star Wars movies as science fiction in the broadest terms it does fit into the genre. When Star Wars came out, that was the only way to classify it. It does hurt a bit in terms of public acceptance. We've gotten letters from literally hundreds of people who say they hate science fiction and didn't want to see Star Wars, but were dragged by their children, girlfriend, husband, and they liked it. So there is an initial negative response to science fiction as a genre by a lot of people, but we've overcome that to a great extent because of the stories themselves. And then Kurtz dips into storytelling. The main purpose of telling the saga is the same purpose that fairy tales serve for young children. It's telling a moral story in a way, by using examples to explain to children especially how they have to relate to the environment around them. Again, that feeds very much into how George has described it in the years since. But Kurtz was very much of a sort of a Buddhist mindset, and so this would be quite core to, to how he would view Star Wars. If there's any main theme in the Star Wars saga, it's the individuality's responsibility for his own actions, which seems to be more of a problem as our society gets more and more complicated. That's a good observation, and this is 40 years ago. Most of us have a tendency to sometimes blame what happens to us on outside problems we have no control over. That's one of the things that we'd like to dispel a bit. It's important that the individual take responsibility for his own actions. 
basic story of Star Wars could be told as Prince Valiant or King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. It could be told as a Greek myth. It could be told as an American Western or a World War II film. Why do we choose science fiction? Because for young people today, space is the last frontier. It doesn't say final frontier, I love that. The mystery of going to exotic environments is the same thing as Columbus sailing around the world in the Middle Ages. That's the unknown out there. This type of fantasy combined with NASA's approach to the reality of space is what stimulates the men who eventually will walk on Mars and escape our solar system, if that ever happens in their lifetime. Kurtz likes the idea that he may be contributing to the exploration of space. The kids who are growing up now think their continued interest in space will be stimulated by films of this type. Bear in mind, Star Trek The Motion Picture has just come out at this point. And in that sense, we are probably contributing to the interest level in outer space. It would be nice to think that the men who walk on Mars for the first time are inspired by Jawas and Wookiees in outer space, even though they know they aren't really there. But it's a cumulative thing, he says. I grew up on things to come. The thing, the day the Earth stood still when worlds collide, all the George Powell films, and cumulatively they still stimulate your imagination. But to say that film over literature, for example, has more of an impact, I don't know. I think the graphics of the visual medium are ideal for science fiction, but some types of stories cannot be told on film because they are too imaginative and they deal with the inside of your head. A lot of Ray Bradbury stories are that way, that's why the Martian Chronicles didn't work, because the whole series of stories take place inside of your head, and it's very difficult to visualise on film. So some stories are best left alone, while others are ideal for film. Now we know, we've moved on with visual effects technology and the, the language of film, and that there isn't much that's beyond a visual telling. But 40 years ago, what we can do now was far beyond what Kurtz could probably have imagined. He talks about the music. One of the important elements of the first two Star Wars films has been the stirring scores of composer John Williams. Kurtz is pleased with Williams' work and states that he'll be scoring the third film as well. So this is early days again. John Williams is returning for Return of the Jedi. John originally came to our attention through Steven Spielberg when he was working on Jaws. George and I went down to watch part of the scoring on Jaws. We were looking for a, that's interesting to know that. We were looking for a composer who had a classical background, who had written classical music and knew the symphonic form. We listened to the scores of many, many films and decided that he was one of the first choices and we talked to him. He was very easy to get along with, he has a wonderful personality and the right attitude towards the music. We wanted a traditional, what we call, Wagnerian score in the sense that each character has a theme and the thematic material is interwoven completely throughout the film. Williams, still to this day, comes back for Solo, comes back for Obi-Wan Kenobi. Getting those individual scores, those character themes... As he says, each character has a theme, so that's something that's continued 40 years on. It worked out extremely well. He did a wonderful job, and he enjoys working on it. After the third film, he's going to take all the thematic material and put it into a symphonic form, a full four-movement symphony. Wow. We'll listen to a lot of different people, from some of the newer composers to quite a few of the older ones, people like Miklos Rosa, Malcolm Arnold, who'd done some British film work. There were some English serious composers who hadn't done any film work who were considered... There was Jerry Goldsmith, of course, Star Trek, Elm Bernstein, a lot of people know Ghostbusters score. There were a lot of composers who have done fine work in the past, but we really didn't consider anyone else after we talked with John and listened to his dual score. And this mentions that many Star Wars fans would dream of 20 years in the future when they can go to a Star Wars festival, this is before celebration, and sit through all nine chapters of the saga, but they worry about the quality of the early films. Can a colour film be preserved for 20 years and still have that archival quality? According to Kurtz, there's a simple but expensive process that will, that will assure the original quality of the film is available. And this is something that we know came to pass 20 years later. One of the reasons with the special editions was to archive and protect the film. And this is before 4K, of course. Any film can be preserved, says Kurtz, if the colour is protected by black and white separation masters, which can be made from the original negative. It's very expensive and it has been done for years with key films. It's never been with all films because of the cost. 
The colour negative is put into an optical printer and a blue, green or red record is projected through these colour filters onto black and white low contrast stock. Then those three rolls of film will put in the same can and preserve, so if there's any shrinkage, it's uniform over the three. And if you need to produce a new colour negative, you put them back in the optical printer and print them through their respective colour filters again onto a new colour negative, and you've got a new colour negative with the same colour as the original. There's no deterioration of colour because there's no colour in the records whilst they're being stored. So this is Kurt talking about film restoration, when at this point there's only two Star Wars films and a holiday special available. He's given fantasy films many years of great entertainment, and he's committed to producing more, which we know he does in the future. I think fantasy is an ideal genre. I think that it gives an opportunity to do certain types of stories that are told symbolically, that can't be told as straightforward, real stories. It doesn't mean there aren't a lot of great stories around that can't be told as conventional films, but when you go through the history of science fiction and fantasy literature, you could do hundreds of really wonderful films. I've always liked the fantasy genre. As a matter of fact, my wife and I have a publishing company called Celestial Arts in San Francisco. We've published children's books principally, and we have a huge library of fantasy and mythology books from all over the world. It's just a wonderful genre to work in. So fascinating that at this point, there's a parting of the ways, clearly. Lucas is going to continue on to Jedi. Kurtz is going to move on to other projects, including Dark Crystal. Kurtz is still going to use ILM. He's still talking very positively about Star Wars. It feels amicable as it goes. History will tell us, as years go by, that maybe the parting wasn't quite so amicable and that their paths would certainly diverge. And, of course, Kurtz passed away a number of years ago. But at the point of this issue of Starlock Magazine, issue 43, Gary Kurtz striking out on his own and looking ahead to the future. Future conventions. These are some of the conventions that were going on in 1981. In fact, Omnicron 2 was being held in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, February 6th through 8th. Aquacon in Anaheim, California, February 12th through 16th. Wait, what was Aquacon? Was that an Aquaman con? (laughs) (laughs) Stonehill Launch 2, February 14th in Riverview, Florida. Dundra-Con 6, which is a gaming convention, Oakland, California. Stellar-Con 6. February 27th, University of North Carolina. OwlCon 2, March 6th through 8th in Houston, Texas. WISCON 5, March 6th through 8th in Madison, Wisconsin. Upper South Clave 11, Bowling Green, Kentucky, March 13th through 15th. LunaCon 1981, March 20th through 22nd. Anderson, a Jerry Anderson convention in Leeds, England, March 27th through 29th. And PitCon, April 10th through 12th, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hello, everyone. My name is John from the Shocking Things Podcast, and I'll be talking about the film Scanners. In issue 43 of Starlog, there's an article called David Cronenberg, Canada's King of Horror, enters the science fiction world with scanners. Now, the article starts off saying some call his films morbid and offensive. Others applaud them as gripping and inspired. I personally think they're a little bit of both. Now, if you've seen his previous films, Rabbit and the Brood, you're going to see how they are, both of those. Uh, now, if you want to see scanners, it is currently playing on HBO Max as we speak. 
So let's talk a little bit about the film, Scanners, the story. In a security-tight room of the Concept Corporation, a top-tier experiment is in progress. A Concept-controlled scanner is demonstrating his mind probe capabilities. Sitting opposite the scanner is a volunteer. Their minds lock. A scan tone fills the room. Suddenly, the scanner begins to moan. His eyes glaze. His body stiffens. He begins to shake uncontrollably and collapses on the floor. The audience watches stunned as the scanner dies in a terrifying manner. Security guards grab the volunteer and rush him to the room. Konsak has just lost his top scanner agent. Somewhere, a rival scanner faction exists, hostile to their program. This group must be found and terminated. Later that night, the man responsible for the scanner's death is taken away under a heavy armed guard. Three cars race through the city streets. Suddenly, the lead car veers out of control and crashes, bursting into flames. The others stop. The agent guarding the prisoner goes berserk and kills his companions. Then, he shoots himself. The prisoner, now alone, drives away into the night. He is the leader of the Scanner Underground faction. His name is Revok. Security broken and their program in jeopardy, Konsak must find an outsider, another scanner, that they can control and use. A massive city-wide search is launched. The net closes on Cameron Vale, 35-year-old derelict. Contact agents kidnap Vale and take him to Dr. Paul Ruth, supervisor of the Contact Scanner program. Vale is unaware of his scanner powers, but through Ruth's efforts, Vale is taught how to control his scanner capabilities. Vale proves to be an apt pupil. Ruth is amazed. Vale is the best one yet. He has the potential to become the ultimate weapon. Satisfied that Vale is dedicated to the contact cause, Ruth sends him out to infiltrate the scanner underground. Vale's first lead brings him to contact with Benjamin Pierce, an avant-garde sculptor. Pierce's studio is a bizarre retreat in the country, a reflection of his anguished, twisted mind. As Vale questions Pierce, several men with shotguns seal off the estate. Then they attack. Pierce is blown away. His sculptures and studio are reduced to rubble. Vale, who has managed to survive the onslaught, turns his powers loose. The attackers are no match for Vale's mind probe. One by one, they drop their weapons and fall to the floor, screaming and dying in agony. Vale leaves stunned and shocked. He is just beginning to realize the overwhelming power he controls. Before Pierce's death, Vale has learned about Tony Gaudy, leader of the rival scanner group opposed to Reebok. Vale is carefully screened by the group and invited to attend a meeting of their inner circle. During the meeting, one of the groups goes scan-crazy and attempts to kill Vale. The others lock mines and destroy him. Vale is taken from the meeting into a park van where he meets the group's leader, Gaudy. As they head back to the city, they are attacked. A wild chase ensues and Gaudy's van loses control and crashes. Gaudy is in instantly killed. Vale and Kim... Another scanner managed to escape. Vale is now the leader of Gaudi's group. Someone systematically trying to destroy all the scanners. But who? So that explains a lot about scanners, but without giving spoilers. Now, I first started reading about scanners, the story. If you watch scanners at the 16-minute mark, that's most likely, to fans of this film, the most memorable scene of the scanning abilities used. 
by Michael Ironside as Revok, and I'd say most Starpod Log listeners will know him best as Ham Tyler from the miniseries V. Now in this article, it talks a little about the shift uh, that Cronenberg has from horror to science fiction, and Cronenberg says, with movies like Star Trek and The Black Hole, you get the idea that production people get obsessed with the new technology of the space films and forget about what audiences are really there to see. Not a differently designed spaceship, but new characters, plots, concepts that are truly fresh and exciting. You can't walk out and buy that kind of thing. And with Scanners, there is something that is uh, a bit original, and it does mix science fiction with some horror aspects. And you'll definitely see them with the makeup and effects by Dick Smith, who's worked uh, on The Exorcist and Altered States as some of the most famous films he's worked on. And... The practical effects at the time were very, very impressive, and besides the scripts and the performances of the films, the effects are basically another character. They are something that really, really stands out in Scanners. Another thing that brings Scanners to life is the music by Howard Shore. It's very eerie and really, really adds to the eeriness of the film. I want to thank Nayar for asking me to talk about the film Scanners. As he knows, this was actually one of my introductions into horror as a child. I saw it at a very young age, and I was very, very intrigued by it. Uh, especially, like I said, the 16-minute mark, watching this as a small child, uh, was mind-blowing. Pardon the pun. If you want to hear more about horror, science fiction, genre films, please search for Shocking Things in your podcatcher. And you can also go to anchor.fm slash shocking things, which is the main hub for our social media and also to hear episodes. Thank you and try and enjoy the daylight. The Incredible Hulk Episode Guide Science fiction fantasy series aren't exactly known for their longevity. A notable exception is The Incredible Hulk now going into its fourth big season on CBS as part of their winning Friday night lineup along with Dallas and the Dukes of Hazard. As other more ambitious science fiction programs fade into ratings oblivion, the Hulk battles on, balancing the limitations of its formula, Bixby must save the day by hulking out twice during the course of an episode, with some sensitive performances and storylines that suggests a growing sophistication. All right, let's talk about this Friday night lineup. We loved The Dukes of Hazard. My brother and I would start watching that. And, yeah, me and my family always loved The Dukes of Hazard too. Right after Dukes of Hazard, The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, and that it was the only show of this type that my parents actually watched. And you were a fan of Dallas as well. Yes. So we were all, like, in front of the TV for three hours Friday night. <laughs> Uh, it was just a, just a fantastic time. I remember just being so excited during this time period. A uh, lot going on in the world of the Incredible Hulk because they were having financial issues. Universal, Universal always had. We know they had those problems back with Balsar Galactica. The Hulk was expensive in in different ways because it. I mean, it took place on Earth. It had mostly humans. You would think that it would that it uh, wouldn't be as expensive, but but they. You know, we've heard stories like they still they had to build a. There was a new set every episode and doing the special effects of the changing from, from Banner to the Hulk. 
And this is an episode guide. We talked about many of the details about the series. The episode guide was essentially a yellow page insert, so it was colored differently, and you were able to pull out this insert and keep it by your television. Talking about the first season, the second season, and actually breaks down episode by episode who, when, what it was originally aired, who the guest actors were, the third season. You were a collector of the episode guides, you said, when you were younger. Well, I left when they had them uh, in Starlog. I loved all the episode guides because it was just the best way to have, I mean, the breakdown of the episodes to see the ones that I had seen or not seen yet. And and looking at the actors, I always look at the actors' names to see if it's someone that I'm familiar with. But I, I never actually tore it out, though. Did you tear them out? I never tore anything out of a magazine. Except yeah, posters. Yeah. I pulled out posters. Okay. Yeah, because you want to keep the magazine intact. That's what mm-hmm. I always thought. Did you have any input on the character or the motions? What what was your say in any of the scenes or episodes? You mean of the whole series? Yes. They said to me to do your thing because I was able to show the pantomime, you know, the emotion without speaking. It came so natural for me, so that's why when I did the show, I would get direction. But the thing I had to learn how to able to, when Bill do his scene, to see what happened. Back then after, you have to know what happened before the scene, and you take that scene, you follow through. So I, I became much aware of that, how to learn about the lighting, because I never acted before. So that was important to me to make the connection. This is Tom Higgins from Classic 78, and you're listening to the Star Pod Log Podcast. This is Tony Barletta. I'm the comic uh, programming director for DragonCon. I put all the comic panels together for them. And joining me today is my friend Rodney Rodas. Uh, Hello, Tony. And we're here today to talk about Popeye, the movie uh, with Robin Williams directed by uh, Robert Altman. What are your thoughts on Popeye? Okay. uh, For me, this is a a quintessential comic strip movie where they, they adapt the film very well. Uh, we're, and part of that is because of Jules Pfeiffer's screenplay. Of, of the, the, the article we're talking about, discussing today, uh, ta- interviewed um, Altman and talked about him being chosen as director. It, it certainly is a question, I guess, in, in the fans of, in the minds of Popeye fans at the time. You know, what is Popeye going to look like, directed by the guy that directed Mash? And is you know, I mean, Mash is, is such an amazing film, but so much different than Popeye. And you know Altman was able to pull it off. He was able to to, oh, totally. to make it make it a a farcical satire, but a very highbrow satire, a very extravagant looking slapstick satire that was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's the thing. Like, there's that charm of the Fleischer cartoon in there. Like in the opening sequence, you see that guy chasing the cat, and he's constantly kicking it, trying to grab at it. Or when the piano movers were moving that piano across that uh, uh, bridge and falls over, and then Poppy takes it and he like right, you know, right. 
Um, you know, th- those are very uh, iconic uh, kind of Popeye moments within the cartoon, and they were able to capture it very well in live action, and live action in the late 70s, early 80s, you know? Sure, sure. And, um, and just just look at the fight with the, in the ring with, uh, you know, the guy that nobody could beat, and Pop, there's Popeye, and all of a sudden he's getting ready to, uh, you know, land the knockout blow, and he's it's a typical Popeye you see in the cartoons all of a sudden come to life. Oh, yes. And, like, for me, and this was coming in as a kid and looking at it and only comparing it to the cartoon, not having much, you know, knowledge with the script in and of itself, you know, it's like Popeye's going to have spinach finally at the end of the movie? I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that is weird. You know, if we if we look at it as like a short, you know, yeah, Popeye has the spinach in the last few minutes of the short, so it makes sense. But overall, like spinach wasn't a big uh, point in in the strip. You know, that was something that was made to the cartoon. You know, like how mm. Kryptonite for mm. Superman radio right, show. Right. Um, but anyways, we're we're kind of sidetracking. Let's kind of skip that. I mean, down. It, it, it did it, it did strike me as strange watching it. How when he he finally finds his pappy that he's been looking for, and he's like, "Oh, I hate spinach!" And he throws he throws the the can up and, and tosses the spinach away out of the can. I, I was I couldn't stop laughing. It was just so funny to see Popeye throwing spinach away. But yeah, let's but, let's get back to the, the makeup of the movie. Um, so Altman was chosen as director, and he was brought in. Um, to direct the Paramount and Disney version that we see today from the 80s. Um, I believe when he was picked as director, uh, he made the statement saying he didn't even know that he could make this film, but he wanted to try. Uh, Also, uh, Robin Williams had already been attached to it, so I'm not sure who hired Robin Williams, but it wasn't Altman. But that was brilliant. But it was Altman that hired the rest of the cast. So what did you think about all the cast? And, and that's the thing, like, we have Robert Evans as the producer, so he probably just had his hand in that and just saying, like, you know, here's Robin Williams coming off of Mork and Mindy. Well, not coming off. He was still filming Mork and Mindy in his, in his prime, uh, right. for that, for that time. So he was like an up and coming star. All things said and done with the makeup and the costuming and whatever, I think that Shelley Duvall's inflection uh, reflecting off the cartoon characters, you know, it, she, I mean, she is quintessential olive oil, you know, and right. as much as Gilda Radner is just an amazing comedian. Absolutely. I mean, the, the best of her generation, absolutely. Oh, totally. And, but I don't. Yeah, like, I, I can't, I can't picture Gilda nailing the olive oil. Um, like, like when you hear Shelly, like, oh, Popeye, and just the, oh, 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 and, and she can't make up her mind which way she's going. She gets all twisted up. I mean, that's just, that's brilliant. Yes, and then on top of that, like, uh, the, the body type of Duvall, where she's, you know, she's very skinny and lanky and had that same kind of, uh, you know, broomstick body type. Sure, of sure. Also, you know, sure. and. That that went a long way, and not to say that Ragnar could not pull it off. I'm just saying that it, it's like I can't. It's hard for me to imagine Gilda Radner in that role. Yeah, I think he made like, the right choice. I mean, I think she's, uh, Shelley Duvall was perfect. Like I I get 
the comedic timing of Gilda Radner. You know, like, I, this could be, you know, she could be like, the, she could have been like the Michael Keaton as, as Batman. You know, like, it came out of left field, nobody saw it coming, everybody loved it. But Maybe. all said and done, it was what we got with Shelley Duvall. Is, perfect. Um, yes. You know, even what, what, what about the rest of the cast? I mean, I, I think Wimpy was especially standout. It's, uh, oh, the article went on to say, I guess he he hired actors he worked with, so he knew them all. Uh, yeah. Wimpy and the whole oil family. It, 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 I do have to say, just kind of going off of uh, you know what was filmed with Wimpy, uh, he he is a little he's. Wimpy has always been like a, a self-serving kind of guy, but I mean, yeah. they, they really put him up to the villainy of just like kidnapping, you know, Sweepy and turning him over to Bluto. I, I, I couldn't believe that either. It, it really seemed like a really horrible thing to do, and just for a bag oh, of cheeseburgers, and then and then everybody forgives him pretty quickly too. Yeah, and I mean that's that's the thing. Like if if it was something that was a little more uh, benign, you know what I mean? Like Hey, like Bluto tricking Wimpy, saying like, "Hey, you know what? Uh, let me watch the kid, and I'll give you this bag of cheeseburgers." Right. That, right. You know, <laughs> that's something I could see Wimpy doing. Like, yeah, sure, you want to watch the kid? Want the kid? I'll this bag of burgers. But, but it was more, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, you know, I'm going to sell this kid out right. for a bag of cheeseburgers. Like, you know that. It it does it does. <laughs> Hurt the ability to look at Wimpy the same way again after that. I think. Oh, oh yeah. I yeah. he's kind of like oh yeah. You know, everybody has that friend that's in the beach. But he, does, he, he But but then again, I guess they wouldn't have found uh, Sweet Pea if it hadn't been for him bringing them olive oil and Popeye to to them. So true. That, that yeah. very. It's just for me. It, it was just uh, again that kind of connected tissue of. Of selling him out, like he, Wimpy still could have been like, oh, he likes Bluto. Usually likes to hang out at the Commodores, and they would just send it. There, there's the Commodore ship, you know. Yeah. They could that way, but whatever. Uh, I, found it, I, I found it interesting too when he t- took Sweet Pea to the the races. I was like, okay, so I'm going to be seeing horse, horse races. No, it's a carnival game. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Again, that's like. That is something that's pulled right out of that. That can you can you can overlay Fleischman animation over that, and would just make total sense, right? You know. And, and so another thing the article um, talked about too, which was a big part of the movie, was the music. It, it, it's actually a musical, um, and yes. there were some other contenders up for um, scoring the music, the movie, and uh, John Lennon, Randy Newman were not picked. I mean, that, that's kind of surprising, but I mean, the, you know the. Uh, I believe they went with Nielsen, who uh, ended up writing some great songs. But it is kind of interesting to think about what it might have been like with those other guys. You know, it, okay, and not to, especially not to disparage John Lennon, uh, but I don't think Lennon could have pulled off with Nielsen. Could. I think Randy Newman, yeah, in like a better contender. I guess, I guess, uh, yeah. Could could John Lennon have written "I Am What I Am," and that's all that I am? <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think Van Dyke Parks, who actually does appear in the film, uh, yeah. could have 
definitely a, another contender. But, I mean, we're talking Nielsen here. We're talking about Nielsen has a certain lyricism to him that, like I said, the only other two that I can see contending with him is Randy Newman and Van Dyke Parks. Uh, yeah. And, like, I could see Lennon writing the music, but I don't see Lennon writing the lyrics. Right. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I guess I guess in closing, it's like what what makes the movie work so well? I mean, we have amazing director of Robert Altman making a movie in a genre he's never done before, making it well. We have incredible actors. I mean, Robin Williams. No one else could have pulled off Popeye other than Robin Williams. We have hey. uh, amazing actors, top to bottom, and the sets. Uh, all of it, and, and like we talked about before, the comic timing and the you know, they had to, you know, the, every single little piece of slapstick was perfectly timed. Um, it seems like it's, I, it's just a perfectly I, timed movie. And for me, the the what makes Popeye work, I mean, it, it's everything. It's the charm of the script. It is the music by Nielsen. It is the Rob Williams doing his best Jack Mercer impression. Uh, yeah. Is, and uh, even, even like Robin Williams, I mean, uh, for me, I mean, you know, I mean, he looked perfectly like Popeye, but even the times when he's muttering to himself, when he's not speaking to another person, but he's just muttering to himself, that's Popeye. I mean, he nailed that. That is, and that's Jack, Mer that's all Jack Mercer, uh, who was the second voice of Popeye. And he, to fill time, that's what he did, was that he, <laughs> he muttered to himself to to just kind of get that extra, to fill in those extra gaps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that was all ad-lib by Mercer. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, again, if, if you're a comic fan, a comic strip fan, and you've never seen this film, definitely go out and watch it. I think this is uh, a quintessential movie that should be in every comic fan entertainment library. And... It's a shame, and I, I'm dead serious when I say this, this should be a Criterion released film. That is how good I think. And well, you have an amazing, you have an amazing director, an amazing cast, and they, they delivered, and they... Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. You know, from, from the set design to the script to the acting to the, to the music to the direction, everything. I mean, that, that set is still in Malta to this wow. day, and it's attraction wow. you know i mean i would i would love to go there and, and visit the set fan scene by bj trimble the society for creative anachronism so this is an article about the sca and how it affects convention scene, how it intertwines with science fiction fans, history fans, and we're going to talk to two individuals who have been part of the SCA for many decades. Please welcome to the show, Aubrey Stevens and Cliff Easley. So this was an amazing article that we found in Starlog magazine, and when we look at it, we want to analyze what has stayed the same with the SEA and what has changed, if anything has changed. So give us an idea. What is the SEA? The Society for Creative Anachronism is really uh, it's a medieval history group, and they believe in the uh, uh, learning medieval history through actually 
living it, okay, reenacting it. Uh, we'd go off for a weekend or a week or two and park the mundane vehicles in, a, in an area and then go on off into the woods and set up the tents and the pavilions in a small little medieval town we'll set up and uh, we'll have our tournaments and our, our our jugglers and our bards and our fire circles and the feasts and and courts and like I said it's uh when they tell you to, to the easiest way to learn a foreign language is to actually move to that country and you can't help but pick it up uh we actually do that. We throw on the tunics and the, the pants and the boots and, and go on out there and put on the armor and uh, go on out there. And we live the, the Middle Ages. Aubrey, how did you get involved in the SCA? See, I was at a sci-fi fantasy convention in Houston, Texas in 1974. And my best friend was there with me, and we were sitting around late one evening at the con, the Saturday night at the con, and we were talking about swords, and a young lady dressed in medieval garb walked over and said, are y'all interested in swords? And it was, why, yes, yes, we are. And she went, would you like to come sit with me and hear about a group that redoes the Middle Ages sword fighting, etc." And, of course, I went, why, yes, yes, I would. And she said, please follow me. And I did, and that's where I got involved and been stuck in the SCA ever since. So the swordsmanship really piqued your interest. Uh, that's what started, yeah. But there's the, here, yeah, I also I'm used to be a history teacher, so that drew me in as well. And what drew you in, Cliff? Uh, let's see. Uh, back in 77, I was playing uh, Dungeons & Dragons one weekend with some friends in college. And some of their friends had showed up, and they said, you know, we actually do this live. And I went, you do what? And uh, they said, well, we're having an event here in a couple of weeks. And I said, great. And we went on off and did the camping. I was an Eagle Scout, so I said, camping I, I can do. And they said, we make our own costumes and do leather work. And I was going... I'm an Eagle Scout. I do all of, I eat and breathe all of this stuff. Cooking outside over fire, fires, campfires and, and all, and I was going, oh, this is great. This was made for me. So that's how I got into it. It's interesting when we look at it because this article talks about how the SDA has representation at science fiction conventions, which Aubrey, you said that's how you found out about it, but you have a historic background more so. Because you're a history teacher. Cliff, you love fantasy, like Tolkien and Dungeons and & Dragons. And, and you get the feeling that the SEA is extremely welcoming to different aspects of people's lives. Uh, uh, over the years, they've asked us at various conventions to talk on several uh, different panels. And we've been asked to talk on Tolkien panels, uh, talking about the... Uh, Arms and armor, weapons—you uh, know—of of the uh, um, the dwarves, the elves, the the, the humans—you know—in Tolkien. To uh, recently, last fall, the Vikings and Crusaders—you know—movies are all uh, very popular right now. And we uh, talked about the Crusades, and we talked about Vikings and all that because we've got that background now that we have learned more about them every time we go to an SCA event. You can't help it. Interesting, this paragraph that's listed uh, in Starlog, 
and Bijo Trimble relates. Originally planned to encompass only pre-17th century Western culture, the SCA allows a wide variety of costumes and persona. There may be a tourney where an Arabian warrior battles a Teutonic knight for the right to crown an Egyptian lady queen of love and beauty, or a Viking shield wall manned by killed Scots and a cavalier or two. None of this may indicate the real world, nationality, color, or even sex of the person. Caucasians are samurai, orientals are Celts, blacks are Vikings. Everyone gets their own choice of ancestry in the SCA. We have female fighters and females who wear masculine dress, although not necessarily the same females. This is back in 1981 this was penned. We just did a panel, and I said almost that same paragraph, word for word, to the people in there, talking about girls come up to you in a suit of armor. You can't tell it's a girl. It's another suit of armor. And and the girls will hit you just as hard <laughs> as any of the guys. So there, there's no... Uh, no sexism or anything like that out there. It's, you know, everybody's treated as an equal out there on the, on the field. And, uh, uh, you know, as far as like personas, I told them, I said, I, I have Oriental friends that have Scottish personas that will show up with a kilt and bagpipes. And I have, uh, American friends that, that will show on up in like Japanese samurai outfits. I've gone out west and watched, uh, Roman personas fighting against a, a Native American Indian persona. So it's it's almost like that show where they had the the fiercest warrior, you know. The, but they were showing that on TV. We're actually getting to see it happen in real life and see how they would two two uh, uh, genres that that would never ever have actually maybe maybe never ever met. We actually get to see how they would measure up against each other. Uh, it's great. Do you think that that's part of the fun of the SCA? Oh, absolutely. And just a little information for you since you're doing the stuff from Starlog there, Bijo Trimble, she was one of the original founders of the SCA as well. It started in uh, around Berkeley and Oakland in California, and she was one of the master students that had been working on her thesis in Middle Ages history, and her and several other writers and just people interested had a weekend of recreating the Middle Ages, and that's what we grew out of. But how did it grow so, so vast and so wide? Uh, a lot of the military here, in the, uh, and I guess college kids also, you know, traveling abroad, took it to other military bases because it's all over Europe, Asia, Australia, uh, uh, the Far East, uh, yeah, New Zealand. Yeah, it's all over now, and uh, it's all around the world. Uh, yeah. It's interesting because the article says that everyone is treated like a lord and lady, but you don't automatically get a title. You have to earn the titles. Can you explain that a little bit? that first title that you get the award of lord or lady uh and and receiving a uh a um was it a uh, aoa the award of arms you're it's a service award so that's a simple thing just by offering to hey can we help you get the the tourney field set up can we can we help clean up maybe after the feast a little bit there it's a it's it's a do-good 
uh, award. That's easy. Anybody can get that. And as soon as you get that, then you receive that title of Lord or Lady, and you're charged with, you know, getting your arms, researching your heraldic arms that you want of a character that might have been during your favorite period in time. You both are involved and run a convention here in Memphis, Tennessee called ShadowCon, which has been going on for years, and it's an SCA convention that celebrates this lifestyle. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, ShadowCon started as a Christmas party at my house, and when it hit a certain point where my wife said, never again at our house, <laughs> we uh, I grabbed a bunch of my squires, and I said, come on, we've got to find a hotel. And once we got to the hotel, we found out that we had set up movie rooms, con suite, uh, gaming, all that. And we said, you know, we're a small con. And it took off, you know, from there. And here we are. We just got through celebrating 25 years uh, of ShadowCon in January. What's some of your favorite things about ShadowCon and the SCA community? Uh, Everybody becomes friends, and even if you don't have something new that you want to do you sometimes just go because you've got old friends there and you want to see them same reason we go to SCA events that we haven't been to in years we go back to see people we haven't seen in years and it's basically like yeah we saw you just last weekend everybody still picks up where they left off so it's that camaraderie and uh, feeling of family is it overwhelming though to learn all this history for a newcomer or do you think that there's it's, there's a, a certain learning curve? There, there's no pressure. There's no pressure on people when they join on in. They go, well, do I have to immediately come up with all? We said, no, no. You know, look around. You know, watch some of the other people, and you may you may come on in and go, okay, I want to start out as a Viking. Maybe you watch an episode there or something. You want to be a Viking, but then you see some of the Crusaders go by, and you go, oh wow. They have really cool, cool outfits and their armor and and what they're doing. And you go, you know, maybe maybe I want to be a you know uh, a crusader type. And, and we go, take your time, look around. Uh, armor, costumes, all that are constantly evolving. You know, and there I'm. I've been doing this for like almost about forty four years of fighting, and I'm about to go get a new suit of armor. You know, and, and, you know, I'm not in, of course, in the very first suit of armor that I've had. I've gone through, over the years, various, various suits, various styles. You're, you're always experimenting, and people don't mind in the SCA talking about it. If you see something really neat, you go, you stop and you go, excuse me, where did you get that? Did you make that? How does it work? And they'll stop, and they'll love to explain and tell you all about how they came up with it or where they got it, you know, and what they like or don't like about it. And you go, wow. So you, by living in the SCA there, you just learn something new, you know. And, and then you may go to a movie later on there and your friends are all going, oh, gosh, why are they all wearing these, uh, why are those guys wearing dresses? And you go, oh, those aren't dresses. Those are called tunics. And you go, where did you learn that? You know. I just picked it up, you know, in in, in the SCA. You pick up these little things unconsciously. I found out that just hanging out with you guys and attending ShadowCon, my appreciation for movies of certain time periods 
the the understanding of warfare, of clothing, of lifestyle has increased just because of this very unique community. Yeah, and that that's part of the fun of going in. And with, to back up what you were just talking about with Cliff, if somebody is interested, back in the days that article was written, you could come to an SA event and make an attempt at period attire, pin two tiles to the front and back, throw it over your head. You were welcome. You still are. And you learn by doing and you grow into it, and it's just a lot of fun. Awesome. We're going to put links to not only the SCA in the show notes, but also ShadowCon, because we absolutely love the conventions you guys put on. Thank you. Brought together from the distant corners of the galaxy are three middle-aged men who have come to discuss the galactic bubblegum invasion. (laughs) All right. You want me to introduce you guys? Well, that obviously was Dr. Durant himself, Mr. Richard Hurley. Yes, I'm Dr. Durant of Dr. Durant Sanctum on YouTube, Rich Hurley. And next to me is Max Overnighter. How you doing? It's Max Overnighter. I do not have a YouTube channel. I just listen to theirs. And our leader, the man of the hour, the one, the only, Lou Melagrana. Also hey, known as Tracksuit Lou, Dollar Tree Lou, El Italia, Spaghetti and Meatballs, Mr. SpaghettiOs, Dr. Hamster. <laughs> Founder of Melagrana Inflatables. Recording from his toy room of solitude. So, <laughs> my name is Lou Melagrana. I have a YouTube channel called My Amigo Like. I also have a website called MyAmigoLike.com that features all kinds of fun knockoff and interesting items. But my best and most wonderful adventure is going to our Facebook page for Amigo Like. We discuss all kinds of interesting topics, including trading cards. Hey, and that would bring us to today's topic. The... The uh, bubblegum invasion. And, uh, yeah, you know, the bubblegum invasion, I, I remember fondly. Uh, as, a, as a kid of the 60s, um, you know, bubblegum cards, I mean, that came right uh, with, the, with the baseball cards, football cards, uh, basketball cards, all that kind of cool stuff. And with the, a lot of the amazing shows i mean amazing to us as 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 kids you know that were coming out for me it was it was batman of course um the 66 campy television series that uh you know they had the came out with all the all the tops came out with all the batman cards so later on you know we had uh we had beatles cards we had monkeys cards we had the green hornet cards uh let's see what else do we have oh the partridge family the all kinds of did just they crazy actually make the partridge family into cards they, they did make pa- remember partridge the monkeys I don't know the yep and monkeys um they did uh the like i said i i've got i think i've probably somewhere around here got some of the monkeys cards um that were done i pretty much uh focus mostly on the batman but i do have uh um the green hornet as well, you know, which was uh, Greenway Productions, and it was, uh, you know, as you, uh, you know, if you if you remember even seeing in the show uh, the Batman and the Green Hornet episode, yeah. 
they they combined. So it was, you know, kind of one fed off the other. But uh, you know, but but the cards, the cards were were just fantastic, and it was a natural, I think, along with comic books. You know, for a lot of us as as kids growing up, I mean, we had the, you know, I mean, you get the you get the cards in the wax pack with that hard stick of bubblegum, oh. which is where you know where the term bubblegum cards come from. You know, it was that that uh, hard stick of gum, and you know, and, and as kids, you know, you pop that gum in there, chew it, uh, you know, blow yeah. bubbles, uh, you know, five minutes it loses flavor, you know, but uh, you know, you Was get it covered like, in chalk. Wasn't that gum covered yeah, in chalk? Covered in like confectionery <laughs> sugar or something. Yeah, like it was so like, powdery and and it would just crumble. Yeah, yeah. When they got older, they would they certainly would. And and I think the confectioner sugar, besides being a flavor, um, also kept the gum from melting and sticking to the cards. Um, so yeah, you'd pop that <laughs> wax pack. You'd pop that wax pack out, and you know, random. Random cards, you know, like eight cards or something like that in a pack with a piece of gum, and it was, you know, a nickel. So yeah, you know, we take your take your allowance, your uh, tooth fairy money, whatever you got. <laughs> um, go return some soda bottles, you know, for the for the bottle deposit, and hit the local five and dime and grab, you know, grab you some cards or candy or whatever it was. But for me, I, I spent a lot of money as a kid. Um, yeah. You know, on on those cards, and you know, you'd be busting them out, and you know the you know the series one, series two, series three, well, you know just, whatever. They just get you hooked, man. They just keep delivering. I mean, yeah, you yeah. gotta get the ones you don't have, and you've got sixteen of one and three of another, and then and that's and that would happen. And you know, you know, we did the same thing. You know, a lot of times with uh, with the baseball cards and football cards and stuff, you know, but uh, with these trading cards, you know, like, you know, a, a band of boys, I mean, we all, all get together and watch the show together. We, you know, talk about it, you know, so we're all, we're all going down to the dime store and, you know, and we all be sitting there just having a big old card ripping open party and just, you know, and we did, we traded them, we flipped them. Uh, we Wait, swapped what's them. Flipping? What's flipping? Taking those cards and, well, what you would do is you'd 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 each take a card and uh, or you know and you'd f- flip them and someone would call even or odd you know so it'd be face up face down so if they were so if somebody called even they both face up or both face down they got to keep those cards and or if they called odd and one was face up one was face down that would be an odd we'd take you know and if they flipped they called even and it was not even the other person took the cards that's how flipping cards that's brutal that's card that's, warfare that's cut you know and, and you would but you would you would only do the card flipping with your extra you know but so most of the time but most of the time i mean when you had like i mean we had stacks and stacks of of baseball cards and uh you know being growing up in milwaukee like i did i mean at that time we didn't have a baseball team you know milwaukee in the 60s until because the braves had left um, and we wow. didn't have another baseball team until the, till the seventies when the, when Milwaukee bought the Seattle pilots. Um, so baseball cards, you know, we, you know, we all had our favorite teams. And, uh, for me, because my parents followed the Braves, uh, even after they moved to Atlanta, uh, you know, my team was the Braves at the time, you know, in football, it was Green Bay, Green Bay Packers. So, well, you know, with, with the cool thing with the, you know, and so with, with, those cards 
um, was we had Thompson, we had Fleer at the time. Um, yes, and, and with those cards, if they weren't, yeah, if they weren't your, your team, you didn't care about the guys. You know, that was, you know, some people, you know, eventually would try to get a whole set, one whole set. And then all the extras, they ended up, uh, you know, as, you know, with the little clothespin on the sp- spokes of the bike to make that cool. Yeah. Sound. I was going to put them on your, I, I can see Rich and you drive yep. around with your, your banana seat bikes with a giant six foot flag off the back. Yep. Riding yep, around yep. with your baseball yep. cards. The big monkey, monkey handlebars, right. Yes. But, you know, but with the, uh, well, with the cords, you know, I mean, the, the idea was, uh, you know, we all wanted to, you know, we all wanted full sets. And, you know, you'd trade them, trade them back and forth. And, and that's, that's what would happen. Like, I might have uh, six of the number 17 cards, and I am i don't have a single number 13 card. Yeah. yeah. Somebody else has got, you know, four 13s. And, he's, you know, so whatever it was, and we all switched around. And, um, you know, I remember we didn't, we didn't have, you know, we didn't collect cards uh, the way we that we do, you know, that collectors do now, you know, they didn't have the the binders with the little slip sheets and penny sleeves and all that. Um, so a lot of those ended up in shoe boxes. And uh, well, isn't isn't that the way we should say them? We wrap them in rubber bands and yep, put them in yep. a shoe box, or yeah, put them in a shoe box. You know, put yeah. a rubber band on them, and you did learn quick that you didn't want to put the rubber band on too tight because it would dent the card a lot. Um. But, you know, but you wanted to keep them together, right? And uh, so, you know, so that's that was the thing, you know. So with me, I, I mean, I, I can still to this day remember, you know, back in, it had to been 1967, 1968, when I finally got the last uh, card I needed to complete my blue, uh, blue bets, you know, which was the Series 3. Uh, it was the number 44 card. It was the last card in that series. And it was the one with Robin, uh, you know, sliding down the rainbow. And I can remember a friend of mine, you know, trading me that. And I was so happy, you know, because I, I was, you know, one of those guys that I had to have them all. And I did have, you know, I had, uh, you know, tons of them. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. That's how we collected it. And, and, and at that time too, it was, you know, being, you know, in the sixties, it was, it was different than collectors are kind of now, uh, because, you know, back then it was, you know, we were collecting for, for what they were and not what they were worth or what they were ever going to be worth. But, but that was a thing. Like when you got them, right? Like, right. You weren't, I, I mean, I don't think anybody back then knew, well, maybe they did or collect for what they were, but I think you got them because you enjoyed them. Like, honestly, I'm somehow I, this weird thing, I don't know if it was the smell of bubble gum or the cardboard, but mm-hmm. something about the pack that had that kind of smell. And even the, yeah. the, the paperboard yeah. cardboard they put it on, like it was mm-hmm. cool to get the thing on the front and then sometimes be like a little border or something on it. And then you'd flip it over and it would have that, it was not black and white. I don't know what the right term is. Cause there's always some kind of like, you have those orange ones you show us Mac where it's orange and it's mm-hmm. like black, but, but they kind of wrote that up and it was just like, you can get lost in that. Like you could get lost just looking at this for, you know, yeah. Well, absolutely. You know, yeah, absolutely. Each one of those cards in its own, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a work of art, obviously, you know, yeah. in the, uh, when you're talking about the comic cards, you know, um, you know, or when you're talking about the, the cards from like, whether it's, you know, Lost in Space, Planet of the Apes, uh, the monkeys, all that, you know, they're just great pictures. And then on the back of the cards, um, you know, some of the cards just had a simple write up, but sure. uh, some of the series cards uh, that they came out, they actually had puzzles on the back. 
you know, so you'd, you needed a certain amount of cards to, to put the whole picture together. Now it's, you know, it's not like a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, where I was always missing like one or two cards. Right. Like, I could never get those, you know, it was yeah, always, yeah. Like, it was always the best part was missing. Yeah. And you had, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, those, those, so then when you'd, you'd put them together, you know, you had this giant piece of art, you know, yeah. and, and, and right now I've, I've got a ton of cards and, you know, it's always been kind of one of the things I've been meaning to do is to, to put those together, you know, and, and frame, you know, to take, take yeah. a set you know, and put those do people do that. They frame them up now and they kind of, right. Yeah. And, um, I've got plenty of cards to do that with. And, uh, but you know, it, it was, and it was cool, you know, that's what, you know, that's what you did. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you'd, you'd get them like when they were brand new and you hadn't seen them before. Now, now for me, I mean, I can look at a card, at the back now and you know no matter how vague it, and, and i know which which character is going to be yeah, sure. um but as kids you know when these, these are all brand new you know you yeah. were all it was all exciting and it, you know and uh so so as you're putting these puzzles together sometimes you didn't you, you didn't you didn't know what to, it was going to look like you had no clue because you know they didn't have the internet and you know they didn't have you know put out any kind of way to say you know when you collect all the cards this is what the puzzle is going to look like yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that about the internet, Max, because it, for me, the cards, were, and like they're kind of talking about the article, like they were every summer when a big movie was coming out, there was a set of cards at the store. And the first ones I remember getting are the Star Wars cards. And of okay. course, now Star Wars is so ingrained in everybody's memory. Sure. I remember getting those cards and being like, what what the hell is this guy? And looking at the cards and be like, who's this? Like, I haven't, I've never seen stuff like this before. And those are the first cards I remember collecting. Obviously, I, 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 you know, I, I collect toys and stuff, so sports cards were big for me. But it's like, you know, it's like, but like the Star Wars cards, and then every summer you get the Marvel Comics adaptation of whatever big movies were coming out that summer, and then the cards. There'd be Star Wars and the uh, Jaws two. I remember had a set of cards. Yes. And, um, yes. They made them was, for everything, right, Rich? They, they started making them for everything back then. But and that was the way, you know, like you said, Max, like. Um, to preserve the movie, right? Because you couldn't go on the internet and be like, I want to see a picture of Star Wars. So you'd have this picture of Chewbacca or Han Solo. And, I just spent your buck 75. You had to go back to the movies yeah. to see it again. <laughs> right. and it was, it was, but it was a way to kind of keep the, the movie alive in your memory to a certain degree or, you know, yeah. the, the nostalgia of it. And, and like I said, I remember what, I, I got those Star Wars cards and I was just like, I got to see this movie because what is this? Oh, you got them before the movie? Oh yeah, because they would come oh, out yeah. usually. You know, oh, they yeah. come out around the time your lead in. would yeah. come out or something. Yeah, and so you'd be wondering, like, you know, what's this guy going to be? And it always stunk. Like you get a set of cards with like, you'd have some action scenes, right? Or you'd have a cool character, and then you'd just have a scene of like some guy fixing a wheel on an X-wing fighter or something <laughs> like that. You know, X-wing being repaired for the assault on Death Star. And you'd be like, oh, here's a guy serving lunch, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> The commissary Seriously. at Pinewood Studios. <laughs> like, like... That's too funny. That's that's crazy. I think the, I think the cool. Honestly, the thing I probably remember the most is some kids in the bicycle spokes. But I remember just for me, I never had a complete set of anything. But the ones that I did have, I remember I was saying to these guys earlier about somehow I remember somebody. Maybe my sister. I don't. Maybe it was me. I remember having some kind of like. Saturday Night Fever cards or something. I mean, I was a kid. I was too young to see it anyway. But, you know, but, like, even, like, you'd have, like, you know, number one, number three, five, six, and seven, you know, 
10 through 18 and then I'd have like 36, you know, and I could never like right. get all the cards. And it was mm-hmm. tough. I mean, when you're a kid, you didn't have the access to go on Amazon and order your stuff, right? Like you yeah. had to be taken to the store, right? You had to right. get in a big old boat of a car and drive your butt up there and that leaded gas and, you know, and go, go get your stuff. But yeah, the bubble gum, that thing was like, yeah, you're right. Because they didn't wrap that bubble gum in anything. It literally sat on top of the card, right? It was just, I remember. Sure yep, it sure did. And uh, yeah, baseball cards. Came that card. Yeah, it came, it came in there. And, uh, you know, I, you know, and it's funny because you would think that that gum at, at some point, you know, would stick. Is that what it was? It was gum? Because I thought it was some kind of plaster of Paris. Uh, that, that's kind of what, but, uh, you know, as a kid, I mean, we. It you was know, pure bliss for the first chew. Like it was like just yeah, and then it was like, it was like ah, this is so good. And then it was like immediately turned to like a rubber tire. Like, it was like <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. It would last. I think the theory on it was that uh, it the flavor would last at least as long as it took you to look at the eight cards to see what you got. <laughs> and then after that, you spit it out and open up another pack, put it, pop in a fresh stack, and look at eight more cards. I think that's kind of how that works. I agree. I think it's yep. crazy when you see like people have unopened sets of cards. Like you see stuff all the time, you know unopened sets like literally the wax, and you don't know what cards are inside. No, you just give a wax, and you're like. And are people like, I mean, I would want to open them, but then you're like, yeah, but first of all, what's a crappy set? And second of all, the gum's probably like, God knows, well, the gum's probably still chewable. I, I gotta imagine. It's gotta be the cool. value of it is enjoying it because it's like Schroeder's, Schroeder's cat, right? Like, it's like, there could be cool cards in here. There couldn't be cool sure. cards in here. It's like, you know. But you're always I, hoping I you got that golden card that everybody yeah. was looking for, right? I remember they had stickers too. Like, you get one sticker. Yes. You, you, so you get yes. like, the cards, and then you get a sticker, and, and the sticker would be like, I, I always had them all over the back of my Wait, the head, headboard. The you know? cards, I think that's what I had. What do those stickers go? I don't know. They, I don't remember where those stickers went. I think my friend used to put them all over his wall. My, his mom used to get upset. because You put them on your trapper keeper or whatever, you know. They'd be all over <laughs> Stick them to your bike. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's... Oh, yeah, yeah. We had, I mean, because, because, uh, you know, then later on in the seventies when they came out uh, with the wacky packages and things, um, that that so those are all all stickers, stickers you know, yeah. uh, you know, kind of, you know, the the crazy, you know, they making fun of different advertising stuff, you know, and I had those, I had those stickers all over the all over the door of my bedroom, um, you know, along with all kinds of other crazy stuff, you know, and. Um, Oh yeah, those used to decorate like your door. Like my friend, friend used to put them on his door, like to his bedroom. Yeah, oh, I were on my bed headboard. I remember my mom lost it. She came in. And she's like, "What are you doing?" Yep. That beautiful one. I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's no. it's Star Wars, mom. Wacky bag. But, but, but then, like you know, I'm I'm like you know, twenty years old, sleeping in a bed with you know, stickers, <laughs> vomit instead of yeah. comet. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Bag. Leg and arm and no leg and leg and screwdriver instead of arm and hammer or whatever it was. Yeah, it was, it was crazy. And then, well, you know, it, well, you know, of course, of course, you always everybody had, you know, like, well, the other thing that we used to do with those those stickers is um, we take them, you know, because you'd get books that you'd, you know, for your school books, and you always yeah. had to remember making those uh, paper covers, you know, you oh, that you found. A brown paper bag and wrap yeah. your book around it. Right, right, you know, biology or math or something. And then we'd stick those stickers on there, you know. And um, 
uh, or on your three ring binders or whatever. They, they, they want those stickers went everywhere. Those yeah. stickers went on everything. It was, it was awesome. I mean, you know, and, uh, now the, the cards of most of the cards that I had, you know, the like sixties, we didn't have a lot of the stickers. So those came out a little bit later. Um, but they, but they, they were, they were a blast. They were fun. They were fun. Yeah, I love, I love, I, and again, it's funny you mentioned Saturday Night Fever cards because, you know, in the article, they sorry, were I'm sorry I said that. I probably just horrified everybody who's listening to this. Well, and, and it, I'm sure it was. And they said that Alien was a set of cards too. Alien and both those movies are rated R movies and they're selling rated R movies to like to kids. kids for cards, you to know. Kids. It's funny. Yeah, that's, but no, it was okay back then. I mean, that's the, you know, like Woody Allen's Manhattan cards, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Whatever, you know, that's, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, and it's, it's just so much, it was, you know, it was so much fun having those, whatever, whatever it was, you know, it's kind of, I think to me, you know, it's such a natural thing to go along with the comic books. And yeah. obviously it's, I mean, you still see those, you still see them coming out now. Yeah. I mean, they're still, they're still doing them every time. I mean, like for me, it was the 66 stuff got me started, but then, you know, in the 89 Batman movie, um, you know, the, the 92, the 95, the 97, every time the movie would come out and, and, uh, you know, other, other movies as well. Marvel's got a huge, you know, got a huge oh, set yeah. by different, different card companies that doing them, Skybox. Um, you know, it's so, you know, it's, it's just a, uh, I think, I think you hit it there is that, you know, it's being able to own a little, little piece of art a little memory of that of those movies yeah and uh you know we'd sit around and i was never a great reader but i would read comic books and i'd read the backs of those cards yeah. Yeah. you know and um i mean yeah. I, I, think, I think a lot of us that's how that's where how we learned how yeah. to read i mean to me it was a way to get excited for the movie it was like i said it was every summer movie season a set of those cards would come out for something and i'd be like oh what's the black hole or what's uh you know, Jaws 2, and, and you, it was kind of giving you a little taste of the movie. You didn't mind, but you'd be like, I wonder what that's going to be in the movie, you know, and, and you got so excited for it. But Star Wars is definitely the one I remember most because Star Wars up until that time, none of us had seen anything like that. And, and to no. see those cards, it was just like, I got to go no, see I, this movie to find out what this is all about, you know. Yeah, because I think they did, didn't they? They did Star Trek cards too, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure yeah. But that's yeah, I mean, so, you couldn't do that now, right? Because you just have the internet. So, like, cards are boring. It, well, I mean, they do, you know? right? Not to get into new stuff. I mean, my daughter's like a Pokemon card opener. Pokemon, I can't yeah. say collector. She destroys them. But right. they put digital ones online. Mm-hmm. So it's not a paper card anymore. It's just digital. And I'm like, I think it just takes away so I mean, how hard is that to do, you know? I think it takes so much away. There's something about opening that wax package with that crappy gum. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't like the gum. Yeah. Just that. You know the cards themselves, the feel of them in your hand, and the, the smell of the the card came in the weird wax paper that they came in. Yeah, was it was smelled, like you know, yeah, it was like well, you know, that was that was all part of the excitement of it. I mean, and you know, I mean, Agreed. not it's it's not you know it's kind of like uh, it's not always just the destination; it's the journey, right? So, you Absolutely. know that I mean, you look at now. I mean, even even now, you see things where you know you buy those little. Uh, plastic egg shaped or whatever things, you know, yeah. they're mystery this or mystery that, you know, collect them all, but you don't know what you're getting inside of them, you know, so it's you, you buy them, you, 
you know, you got that anticipation, that fun of, you know, opening up that mystery, not knowing what's there. It's like opening a, a Christmas present, you know, or a yeah. birthday yeah. present or whatever. And that was kind of the same feel, you know, I mean, I know we, we used to walk up to the, up to the dime store, you know, the whole six or eight blocks or whatever, back when you could still do that as a kid and, uh, you know, go up to the local dime store and, you know, get a mouthful of, or a bag full of penny candy or whatever. And you'd pick up the, you hit the bubble gum machines and the, you know, the little vending machines and get your super bouncy balls and your, uh, uh, you know, flicker, flicker rings and, and uh, you know, and you'd, you know, and you'd, you had, you know, had your cards and, um, you know, you'd, some, some kids would be wanting to, you know, rip them open on the way home. And some of the times we'd do, you know, you'd wait till you got there and you'd sit there and just have a mad rip open party and see what's in there, you know, and it's just, uh, it was fantastic. Nothing more exciting than the candy store. It had, you know, candy counter. Comic book rack and the cards. That's true. I just loved looking at all that stuff. Like it was like a real live Willy Wonka spot. Yeah, you know, and we had you know, and we had the stores. I mean, it was called. I I think I don't know if they're still around, but you know, the the store that we used to go as a kid. I remember was was a Ben Franklin store, the Ben Franklin Five and Dime store. You know, I mean, had all the, you know, you could get those. uh, what now are the Chuck Taylor Converse shoes, but that's where you get the cheap tennis shoes, which are those Converse with yeah, the big double white cap and, right. you know, the little kids that the girls all wore and, you know, all the toys. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, it was just like, you know, and they did everything in there, you know, and it was yeah. just, uh, that was just like the greatest thing on the planet. And uh, when they get the new cards, you know, baseball cards, like I said, and, and all of these, all of these different things. You know, and I remember um, my my sister was a uh, a huge huge Beatles fan. You know, um, and not that long ago, well, unfortunately she's passed away now. But uh, before she passed, um, I I was out looking at uh, non sports cards, and I found uh, those those Beatles cards that they did. And they did some that were in black and white, and they did some that were um, color. And some of them they kind of looked kind of looked like the the guys had autographed them. You know, it was printed. Yeah. Cool. And, um, you know, I got, I, I grabbed a bunch of those and I put them in one of those, um, floating frames where you could see the front and the back. You know, you could hang it on the wall, but, uh, but you could take it down and read the front and the back and made a kind, kind of a cool little collage with a bunch of those, you know. And so there's so much stuff, you know, that, you know, it, you can do with them now and, um, that we would have never thought of back then. But at, back then it was just a matter of having them all and, you know, come along with them and carrying them around and all that shit. Yeah, you know, banana bikes with your banana seat bikes with your saddlebags on the back, and yeah, they'd be they'd be all over my bedroom floor. They'd be in shoe boxes somewhere. They'd be in my <laughs> comic book boxes. You know, you'd use them as bookmarks for your books when you're reading Absolutely. books. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing is like sometimes the part of collecting things is is not to keep it pristine, but to enjoy it. Enjoy and, uh, and you know those those cards had so much more soul to them, you know. Like Max said, you know, when, when he was doing his West Side Story set, you know, flipping the cards, you know, with, with opposing gangs, like, <laughs> the sharks, to win stuff. But like you know that that's that that was the fun part of of collecting. But I mean, you trade stuff, you know, you trade the cards no. with a buddy. Like you, you have you have Chewbacca, I got Chewbacca. I mean, you know the it's you know like the you guys infamous... were out of prison trading cigarettes for uh, for well, stuff. You, you, you know the infamous Star Wars card, right? There's a there's a Star Wars card of C three PO 
um, where because of the way they took the picture, it looks like uh, C-3PO is uh, excited to see you. And what? So they, yeah, it's true. And I met so, that guy in real life. Very, that's a very expensive card to get now because of, you know, of that uh, glitch or whatever. They had to recall it, I think, because somebody caught it. But, um, yep. Funny. Oh, my it's, God. It's just the angle of the picture, and then, you know, it just that's looks. too funny. Oh, my God. Well, I think we probably have to get towards the end because we're running out of time on that. But, um, yeah. Our time on this brief. earth is brief. Exactly. It's we nice to go back and see the the everybody goes and checks out the star log and, and the articles that everybody's putting out here and we're going through because it, it's a lot of fun to go back and look at. And honestly, we could probably talk about this for days, weeks, yeah. <laughs> just go on and on and on. Cause there's so much, especially with cards. There's so much, they did it in everything. I mean, there's, was there anything that was untouched? You tell me the Partridge family and I can think of as that crazy the bus with all the crazy colors. And I'm like, yeah. these yeah. make clothes that look like that. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. I'm like, and that's what I'm I thinking. Used, like on a car. I used to wear clothes that look like that. What are you talking <laughs> about? Okay. What do you mean? You stuff. Okay. Too funny. You should hold on to those clothes. They probably be afford a fortune too. So. All right. Well, I, Max Overnighter. Thanks for listening. Check me out on uh, Migo like Facebook. Uh, now I think I'm inspired to go into doing an more video and uh, show some of these, show some of these pictures of these uh, cards that I have. They're 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 amazing. My name's Rich Hurley. Um, I have a YouTube channel called Doctor Durant. I thought you were, were Doctor Durant. Your name's Rich Dr. Hurley. Well, it's I've heard that name before. <laughs> <laughs> you never see Doctor Durant and Rich Hurley in the room at the same time. <laughs> it's just like you never see me. You don't never see Max Overnighter and Batman in the same room, right? <laughs> if I remove my glasses. Holy shit! Where did where did, he, where did he go? So, uh, yeah, I I have a YouTube channel called Doctor Durant Sanctum where we talk about uh, old toys, old comic books, old movies. Uh, I showcase a lot of stuff from my collection. Uh, do do little video essays on things, and we we just have a lot of fun in there. So uh, please come and check us out. It's Doctor Durant Sanctum, spelled. D-O-C-T-O-R. I, I make it hard for people rather than, I don't know why I didn't abbreviate it to do dot Durant, but it's Dr. Durant Sanctum. And uh, I've also got a Facebook page as well, Dr. Durant Sanctum. You can visit us there. And uh, if anyone is wondering, it's Dr. Durant because Anthony Perkins was one of my favorite actors growing up. And I love the black hole. And that is the character that he plays in the black hole. Okay, I'm uh, Lou Melagrana, and uh, this was a lot of fun. It's always good to get on with these guys because we could just, it's very casual. We just talk and talk. Um, so we have a nice Facebook page called Mego Like, and uh, everybody's welcome to join and have fun over there. Uh, I have a YouTube channel called My Mego Like, and then I have a website that's been going for a few months now, MyMegoLike.com. There's over a hundred something pages of various toys and costumes and stuff people sent in such as Max and Dr. Duran here sending stuff in to post up there. And it's got all kinds of old stuff. That's fun to look at. Now I'm thinking we should have had a section on uh, cards. <laughs> well, no, we can. Max has a whole bunch of them. And I, I'll, yeah, get, I'll get you started, Lou. Oh my God. I know. Here it comes. Here it comes.
This is Eternal Zan, founder of the Cult of Marriott Carpet. If you'd like to join us, check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash cult of Marriott Carpet, all one word. In the meantime, stay tuned for more exciting info on Starpod Log. Hello, everyone. My name is Steve Eunice, and I'm joined by my good friend, Michael Bailey. Hey, Mike. Hey, Steve. How's it going? Doing well. We're from supermanhomepage.com and chat about uh, sci-fi in the comics and specifically looking at Superman in as a sci-fi character or as a sci-fi story in the comic books. And uh, we kind of have different views on this, Michael, because uh, the article in the um, version of the magazine, Starlog magazine, issue number 43, uh, which talks about uh, the Super 40s, um, for me, I see a lot of Superman uh, science fiction elements, but you don't believe Superman's really necessarily a science fiction character? Uh, no, uh, mainly because I think he created a whole new genre mm-hmm. um, where there are elements of science fiction, uh, but he really created the costume superhero uh, for comics. And if you look, and the article mentions this, uh, if you look at his early adventures... Uh, he was fighting gangsters. He was fighting crooked politicians. He was fighting uh, bad drivers. Uh, <laughs> it, it was It's a whole thing. You all really need to re- read it. Now, that is not to say that science fiction elements didn't come in because in issue 13 of Action Comics, they introduced the Ultra Humanite, mm-hmm. who is really his first supervillain. Uh, and then they just kept bringing him back until Lex Luthor uh, became more of a going concern. Uh, and you always knew it was an ultra humanite story because in the middle something really random and science fictiony would happen. Yeah. And then you're like, ah, uh, it's the ultra humanite. I knew it. <laughs> but um, I, I think one of the cool things about Superman is that while there are definitely science fiction elements to the character, it is always more amazing when he is that amazing thing in a very kind of real world. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think you have a different take on this. <laughs> yeah, well, well, for me, I think Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster were very much um, inspired by the whole science fiction idea. I think they created a science fiction magazine as something that they published early on in their, uh, you know, uh, duo, their, com- their combined efforts together. And... Um, kind of turned the whole idea of the science fiction story on its head. You had the, you know... Things like Buck Rogers, where you have a human going to outer space and doing all these, having these ventures in, in, in on other planets. But then, what Siegel uh, smartly did was he turned it on its head and brought an alien, a, a person from another planet, to have adventures on Earth. And you know the abilities that they had, that he had because he was on Earth, were you know these the the super parts of the story. Um, yes, initially there were crooks, there were you know. Um, wife beaters, there were different things that Superman was battling against rather than anything kind of science fiction. But I thought the elements of being a character from outer space that came to Earth, um, you know, is definitely a science fiction element there. Yes, it's a superhero thing that was created, a new genre. Um, And then as the 40s went on, we had the giant robots. You look at the Fleischer cartoons and how they were portrayed with, you know, people who had... Uh, special beams of you know cannon things that would fire a beam and bring the you know uh, meteorite to earth or bring the moon down or whatever it might be we had um, dinosaurs 
being brought back to life, you know, being thawed out and, and brought definitely a lot of science fiction type elements uh, into those stories throughout the 40s. But I agree with you that initially it was very much a Earth-based type of villain that he was fighting. Yeah, and as we got into the 50s and especially the 60s, uh, there was definitely more of a science fiction element to it, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because he was a character you could do that with. They, they did it with Batman, but it always, to me, felt a little like those stories are interesting, but it always felt out of place because he's a very human character. It's mm. just like it's funny you were that when you were talking about how Siegel and Schuster brought the alien to Earth, it's kind of like a reverse John Carter of Mars. Yes. Where, you know, John Carter goes to Mars and because of the light of gravity, he can do all these really amazing things. Uh, but with the introduction and of uh, Krypton being something more to flesh out with firefalls and thought beasts and crystal mountains, crystal mountains and moons that were destroyed because of uh, evil people in the phantom zone. And that brings into like the fortress of solitude. uh, There was always a definite sci-fi bend to the character Mm. Uh, in the comics because you could do it. Not, Necessarily on the television series, uh, the George Reeves series, a um, little bit of the serial, a lot of it in the uh, animated Fleischer uh, ones, and the <laughs> having recently rewatched a couple episodes of the flight of uh, the uh, filmation Superman uh, animated series from the sixties. There's a lot of science fiction in that. They were constantly having aliens come to Earth and doing stupid things. So it's just, I, I think it's what. The genius of Superman uh, is basically all the things that Siegel and Schuster ripped off from other people. Mm. Uh, it's, it's like, and, and, and maybe that's a little harsh, uh, but again, they were just two kids, you know, from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, you know, Siegel born and raised there, Schuster moving there uh, when he was in high school, that were just absorbing all of this science fiction or scientifiction. Uh, from the pulps and from books and from movies, uh, movie serials and such. So it's only natural that all of that would go into a blender and come out as this character who then looks original because of it. And I think that's the beauty of Superman is that there are so many different elements of different genres in his story You've got the science fiction element that we've just both spoken about. There is, you know, the detective type of work. There's the, you know, the the everyman getting out there and doing what he has to do as a reporter, trying to, you know, bring to light certain stories. You've got the drama. You've got some comedy, you know, that is thrown in. There are, you know, the, you look at the 50s TV series and it's all about Clark Kent, the reporter, investigating things. And Superman comes at the end to save the day, mostly because of budget concerns. Um, they focus on the Clark Kent side of things. There are so many facets to the character that you can argue that he belongs in every genre, uh, as well as science fiction. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, this was a this is an interesting article. It was actually an interesting issue of uh, Starlog in and of itself. It's kind of funny to look at the early stuff, and there's a there's an episode guide for the Incredible Hulk, which I got distracted with because <laughs> um, I love that series so much. But no, it, it's just. The article kind of kind of split the difference between the two of us. Yes, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, when it was dealing with Superman, uh, and I and I love the quotes 
of you know like Vince uh Jack Leibowitz and Harry Donenfeld seeing the cover to Action Comics number one and going, no one is going to believe a man raising a car and smashing it. And it's just that type of old man-ism, I yeah, guess you could that say. short-sightedness. That, that, I mean, because they very well could have been true, but it just turned out that the kids of 1938 were hungry for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a kid, you know, like a grown man, you know, you know, dealing with the depression looks at that and goes, that's silly. But a little kid hungering for some escapism, just like it's it's a guy in a cape and he's got a car over it. Like, why is he smashing it? And what's with that dude in the front? Just, you know, with his head, like almost (laughs) on fire as he's running away. And from that, and from a story that really doesn't tell you much about the character, yeah, this mighty oak grew. <laughs> exactly, and it's an interesting article written by Ron Goulart uh, that you know talks about science fiction in the '40s. Obviously, looks at Superman as you know one of the the kind of forefront uh, characters in that era, uh, but then goes on to talk about other characters uh, and you know the different things that happen: um, aliens and insects, the Red Knight, um, you know, and all those kinds of things that happen during this era. Uh, Doctor Fung. Um, Blue Beetle, all these characters that kind of came around that type uh, with uh, Mystery Men comics and all those kinds of things that uh, were very much part and parcel of the 1940s era and uh, the late 1930s as well. And uh, Superman was at the forefront of that with uh, elements of science fiction in his stories, as we've kind of both discussed. But uh, a really interesting article, as I said, Starlog Magazine, issue number 43, uh, has a lot of interesting content in there. But, uh, yeah, Superman as a science fiction character, definitely elements in there. And Ron Goulart has, like, a... I mean, his his bibliography of all the books and the articles and, and nonfiction and fiction that he wrote and the different properties he dealt with, it's like it's like war and peace hmm. uh, in, in length. Uh, so it's just like this was definitely the guy to get to write this article. For sure. Well, there we go. That's our views on Superman as a science fiction character, especially looking at the 1940s in light of the Starlog magazine, issue number 43. We hope you've enjoyed uh, hearing our views on this particular topic. Uh, Remember, you can find lots more about Superman at our website, supermanhomepage.com. Michael and I do a weekly live show called Superman Homepage Live, which airs on Monday nights at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time, goes for an hour. Michael, you also do a number of podcasts about the character. Yep, uh, there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which focuses on the post-crisis adventures. There's the Superman and Lois tapes, which uh, which I co-host. Uh, that's all about Superman and Lois, and every once in a while series. I kick out uh, the TV series, and I kick out a uh, really random show called It All Comes Back to Superman, where I talk about other stuff uh, as the mood catches me. Uh, so you can find that at www.fortressofbailey2.com. Hey everybody, this is Flynn Hendricks, the professional wrestling, acting, podcast host extraordinaire, the one-man enterprise. You can follow all my endeavors at linktree slash Hendricks. and I know you hear me when I say I'm here to tell you about everything that happened in the world of professional wrestling in 1981. For starters, we've got notable events like the All Japan Pro Wrestling Champions Carnival that was won by Giant Baba on April 23rd. 
and their competition, New Japan Pro Wrestling hosted the G1 Climax, which was won by Antonio Inoki, who defeated Stan Hansen in the finals on June 4th. And then, stateside, on October 4th in Jim Crockett Promotions, Sergeant Slaughter won the NWA United States Championship. And to boot, 1981 was also the debut year of the walking condominium, King Kong Bundy. But not only that, Ric Flair was named the PWI Wrestler of the Year and Bob Backlund was the PWI Most Inspirational Wrestler of the Year. And on the Wrestling Observer side of things, Harley Race won the title of Wrestler of the Year. The feud of the year for Wrestling Observer was Andre the Giant versus Killer Khan. Tag Team of the Year was Jimmy Snuka and Terry Gordy. The most improved wrestler, according to Dave Meltzer, was Adrian Adonis, and the best on interviews were Captain Lou Albano and Rowdy Roddy Piper. And as far as births go, 1981 saw the birth of Shad Gaspard, Larry Sweeney, Ty Dillinger, now known as Sean Spears, Lance Cade, Justin Gabriel, Brian Danielson, and Kofi Kingston. And that's what was going on in 1981 and the crazy, wild world of professional wrestling. And I know you hear me. Here come the Duke, Luke, and Bo. This is Daisy, and away they go. From the Dukes of Hazard collection. Help! You can pretend she's stuck up in a tree. Luke and Bo gotta set her free. We're coming. Up goes Bo with a boost, and down comes Daisy from her roost. All's well? Get into well. From the Dukes of Hazard collection, Luke, Bo, and Daisy, each sold separately by Mego. The Incredible Hulk meets Captain America. Each a foot tall with flyaway action pack. Assembly required. Just look up the flyaway pack, and here comes Captain A. Avalanche! This is a job for the Hulk. The Incredible Hulk with the waist that's clean. Lots of muscle and skin that's green. You can make them fly. Captain America and the Incredible Hulk, both with flyaway action pack, each sold separately by Mego. Starlog Magazine, issue number 44, cover date March 1981. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. This is from Kevin Jones in Naugatuck, Connecticut. I enjoy your series on science fiction comics. However, I would like to see more articles on current comic books instead of yesterday's comic strips. Maybe you can make it a regular feature by one of the people at Marvel or DC. I know it's a lot to ask, but if you can, you'll have this reader for life. If this kind of fan response continues, you can expect to see more coverage, larger, larger photos, and the rest of Goulart's collection. Well, we know that comic book fans are, are Starlog fans, and within time it would come to the point where Starlog had to have yet another magazine called The Comic Scene come out, specifically for comic book fans. Yeah, there was enough interest in it. I mean, there there are always comic book readers. And there's a crossover with regards to fandoms. Yes. Log Entries. Latest news in the worlds of science fiction and fact. Conan in production. After several years of false starts, Conan, Robert E. Howard's classic literary creation of the 1930s, is now in production and shooting in Spain. The title role is being played by bodybuilder Arnold Schwarzenegger and features the talents of Sandel Bergman, 
Max von Sydow, and James Earl Jones in co-starring roles. It's been in the talk for a while, but finally, we even get to see a picture of Conan, which is very odd that the picture that they chose to produce in this publication is the end credit scene where Conan is King Conan with a beard sitting on the throne. Yeah, I kind of think that that, that must be the one the studio gave Starlog to print. Yeah, which and, would have yeah. thrown a lot of fans off. <laughs> but the movie had basically an all-star cast. Howard the Duck goes to court. Poor Howard. First, Walt Disney Studios forced him to wear pants and have his beak bobbed. Now he's in the middle of a court case between his creator and his publisher. Okay, I never saw the connection between Donald Duck and Howard the Duck. I never thought Howard the Duck was a ripoff of a Disney classic character. So somehow someone had to bring this up and and decide that there are too many similarities. Uh, which is crazy. I mean, a duck? How many characters are there of a duck? Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. I guess how far it, are you going to go with this? I mean, how, how does he dress? You know, what? And, and a talking duck. How many talking ducks are there? Uh, would they do this to Daffy Duck? Yeah. Looking at the picture, though, Howard the Duck does wear blue, and Donald does wear blue. Yeah. But as far as that's the connection, I don't get it. I just don't get it. But also, the court case is in between the creator, Steve Gerber, and Marvel Comics. Because Marvel was starting to make buttons of Howard the Duck. Because it was a satire classic. People were latching on to the character. Steve Gerber said, I didn't design this to merchandise. I designed it as a comic book character. We see these litigations now are totally different. This is why creators don't want to create anything for the big two companies anymore. Because more money is made off of merchandising than they do the actual publications. So there's multiple levels to this lawsuit. Well, yeah, when there when there's a lot of money to be made, then then it kind of attracts lawsuits. But they never expected, you know, it, Howard the Duck to be as popular. So that that's what happens. Wedding bells aboard the TARDIS. Despite the lovely female companions that surround him, Doctor Who has managed to keep his distance from romantic liaisons. Tom Baker, who bows out as the fourth Doctor at the close of this season, is about to change all that. Last November, Baker announced that he and actress Layla Ward, who has played his Time Lady companion Romana for the last two years, will wed. So this is not on screen, but obviously off screen. Very happy for the Bakers. I mean, I, th I think they're a great couple, um, because Romana was a Time Lady, too, so they have that in common. This is Bruce Bertner. It's an article about altered states featuring Bob Balaban, page 16. I uh, was blessed with uh, getting to watch Altered States. It was directed, of course, by Ken Russell, who did uh, such films as Lair of the White Worm and uh, Listomania and the Who's Tommy, the musical. Anyway, he's a good director, but some wild images. This is a movie that almost demands being remade here in 2022 because although the effects are great, some of it could be, it almost looks computer-generated. Some of the effects where William Hurt's arms swell up and looks like they have bladders in them, but there are also some other wild, like, multi-eyed uh, rams. And uh, uh, there's a great scene where there's a naked Blair Brown, and she's like a sphinx in the desert. 
and she turns from human into a uh, dust, if you will. And uh, she and uh, William Hurt eventually uh, blow away in the uh, wind. It's very, very well done effects. The plot's a little talky. There are parts of it where William Hurt goes on tangents because Patty Chayefsky, the writer, was a kind of an intellectual dilettante, and it's good, but you can see where today we could uh, speed up the uh, action a little bit. But the effects overall are great. Uh, the, the resounding moral of the story is that love conquers all. William Hurt is a man who can't love until he can. And uh, some good scenes with uh, he reverts after taking a substance like ayahuasca. Look it up. He reverts to a, a primal being and uh, escapes to a zoo and attacks uh, what I guess are sheep. He eats a, she- a sheep. It's not actually him. It's an actor uh, who uh, substitutes for him. Almost very uh, 2001, uh, the very first scenes where the uh, primitive men are uh, ape-like. Anyway, it's a good movie. A good movie. I recommend it. Watch it. It's kind of a overlooked classic. But Bob Balaban comes from a family of movie people. Not that they were actors. They actually owned movie theaters. His uh, father owned a movie chain in Chicago, which is near where I'm from. His uh, grandfather was a uh, movie studio head, and his uh, uncle uh, lived in New York, and his uncle was uh, also involved with Paramount, I believe. But... uh, During high school, Balaban spent some time studying in Chicago's famous improv theater, Second City. You know it from Bill Murray and John Belushi. He went to Illinois' Colgate University, where he studied English, and then transferred to New York University, where he studied English, and then transferred again to major in liberal arts. So he's got a good pedigree, but he's known as uh, an actor, a director, and a writer. So he's kind of a triple threat. The gist of the article is that he's always uh, playing the uh, second uh, second lead to the hero, even though in Close Encounters he played the uh, interpreter for the French uh, Truffaut, the director that Spielberg loved, who played Claude Lacombe in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But Balaban, his uh, article is very good. It uh, speaks a lot about both Close Encounters of the Third Kind and also Altered States. Um, Altered States deals with sensory deprivation tanks. And what happens is uh, William Hurt experienced in it in the late, very late 60s and has a lot of hallucinogenic uh, experiences that are Christian theme-based about um, the Christ and uh, crucifixion and things of that nature. And then he adds ayahuasca to the mix and he actually reverts in the tank, comes out and he... uh, has blood on his face, and he uh, has uh, reverted to a gorilla-like skeletal structure. And eventually, it uh, reverts back to, like, the beginning of mankind. And um, he, uh, it's it's some very good special effects, but uh, he reverts back to the beginning of creation. As I say, I almost can't do justice. You almost have to watch the movie and read the book. But it's pretty good. Anyway, uh, Bob Balaban, they asked him, did you try the sensory deprivation tank? And he said he felt no need to do so. The character would have, but he himself would never need to use a sensory deprivation tank because it just wasn't his style. He wasn't uh, wasn't interested in, in it that much. He's an actor and he acts, which is a good point. 
he speaks a little bit about Close Encounters, the special edition. And he says about it, he says, I had known that there was going to be a special edition of Close Encounters of the Third Kind for a while. I just didn't know who or what was going to be in it. When Steven called me back, Steven Spielberg, I was basically happy because I had such a good experience with Close Encounters that to do some more stuff on it was real pleasing to me. Did Bob's callback interfere with any of his other jobs? No, even on the original Close Encounters, they would always fit additional shooting around your schedule. In fact, when they called me up about the special edition, I was doing a play in New York at the Public Theater with Louise Lasser called Mary and Bruce. Hey, my name's Bruce. They were going to buy the theater for two days to pay for all the seats so that I could go to California. I wound up doing one new scene about a third of the way through the film where I'm walking through what's supposed to be the Gobi Desert and I find a large ocean liner in the middle of this desolate plain. They were always supposed to have the scene in the original, but Steven never got a chance to shoot it. We filmed it in a place not far from Las Vegas, which is wonderful, stretch of sand dune which looks like any desert you ever saw. He says, to me, there are two things going on with the special edition. The promise of the new ending was something that had to do with business. Columbia, on a purely publicity level, wanted to make sure that more people would come to the theaters to see it. I think that Stephen really did, what Stephen really did was quite an unusual and good thing for a director to do. He refined the movie that he made. Stephen made the changes and additions that if he had originally had three months more to work on Close Encounters, he would have instituted Even though I love Close Encounters, the first time I think that, on the whole, the special edition was better. As far as I know, the special edition was in lieu of the sequel to Close Encounters, but that doesn't mean that they still won't do a follow-up, which as of 2022, we've never seen a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and I think it's such an excellent movie, it kind of stands on its own. My feelings are that uh, the special edition was just a whole lot of happy nonsense. Richard Dreyfuss goes in uh, like an elevator and tours the interior of the ship, and that's about it. I mean, it's not, there's no great meeting with the uh, mega mind where he learns the meaning of it all. He just tours the inside of the ship and looks amazed, which is fine. It's good, but it's not, it's not really, uh, something to spend your extra hard-earned money on. I'm sure most people in this audience have seen the special edition, and you can draw your own conclusions. He goes on to say, I expect that they wouldn't have wanted a science fiction person in altered states. From the beginning, the belief was that altered states was a human story. They felt that the more realistic and three-dimensional they could make the humans, the more exciting the rest of the story would be. I don't know if Warner is worried about altered states being labeled a science fiction film, because from my point of view, there's nothing wrong with being a science fiction movie. I've been in, uh, I've been a science fiction fan since I was quite young. And that's a good point. The movie is, it tries to border between both hard drama as the uh, relationship between Blair Brown and William Hurt as a man who can't feel love, but then it does delve into the uh, science fictional or speculative fiction with uh, Hurt becoming uh, a proto-human. In other words, he uh, keeps shifting uh, in his uh, molecular makeup, which to me, and this is kind of the ending point of this whole review, Go back to the original Outer Limits circa 1963. Find the episode The Sixth Finger. Uh, David McCullum plays a character who uh, is uh, both regressed and tra- uh, progressed through time and uh, becomes an evolved human with a sixth fem- finger and a bulbous head with a big brain. 
and then uh, his girlfriend saves him and he goes back and reverts back to his present human form. It's a great episode. It's 50 minutes of pure bliss for me. The makeup job is great. The science fiction element is there. David McCullum's a great actor. The other movie that came after this one that shares a lot of DNA, pardon the pun, is The Fly with Jeff Goldblum. In the original fly, basically what happens is you transpose the head of a fly onto the head of a man and vice versa. So the fly with David Cronenberg edition is that the two beings, the fly and the human being, their DNA somehow combines to create a hybrid that uh, over time uh, becomes uh, less and less human. And it's pretty great. And this movie shares a lot of similar characteristics of uh, dealing with not so much teleportation, but the DNA aspect of rearranging your molecules and creating a new being from, uh, you know, both ayahuasca and the uh, sensory deprivation tank. Whereas in the the fly by David Cronenberg, it's all due to the teleportation teleportation device, uh, scrambling the molecules between a fly, a common house fly, and a human being. Both great concepts. I enjoyed Altered States. I hope you will, too. Verna Fields, the studio executive who halted the expanding budget on The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Okay, I loved The Incredible Shrinking Woman when I was a kid. I thought this movie was fantastic. Based on the Richard Matheson classic, The Incredible Shrinking Man, Except completely different. <laughs> Except completely different. You know, Richard Matheson says he does not like his idea of a shrinking person being toyed with and turned into a comedy. Oh, well, I mean, it worked as a comedy, though. It really did. Uh, we know he has background in Star Trek, in Twilight Zone, so he wants to do things more on the serious side. But guess what? Lighten up, Richard. This was a great movie. Uh, we know the Universal constant, constant budget problems i don't think this movie came across as low budget though i think the special effects were great on it yeah i thought the movie had had good effects even though like but you could tell that they that they did use the oversized props like instead of using the uh, the shrinking effects with the camera yes but it, it still looked good i mean they i mean and they did have to spend money on on the oversized props that's right and that's what vernon fields is saying is that they had constant run-ins with production problems. And they also wanted to push this movie back because this was filmed right around the time of 9 to 5, and they did not want to release two Lily Tomlin movies at the same time. They did not expect 9 to 5 to be such a huge success. So they wanted to wait till that calmed down a bit until Incredible Shanking Woman was released, which I think is smart. Yeah, it, w- it was good to do that because she's... You know, she's the star of both movies. And, and so, yeah, I can see her, like, playing a different character. And she, I mean, she did want the movies to stay separate. But, um, she, she was great in this movie, The Incredible Shrinking Woman. I mean, it was like, she, she's such a brilliant comedian. And we she all played know so that. many parts. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the way she did all the different parts in the movie was funny. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't even notice that. It's funny because I noticed it because my mother was a Lily Tomlin fan and she had the Lily Tomlin record album where she would do all these parts vocally. Oh, that's neat. Like the radio operator or the the switchboard operator. Yeah. But everyone else in the movie was good, too, because they could play off her. I mean, it's interesting that they made it where she, you know, she had a husband and kids in this movie, 
I mean, in the the Incredible Shrinking Man, they didn't have kids. Mm-hmm. So, so in this one, it was, yeah, it was really strange to see her her kids having to watch her go through this. And it's funny to see this listed in Starlog magazine. I never viewed this as a science fiction classic, but Incredible Shrinking Woman also made the cover of Famous Monsters of Filmland. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> well, they they must have just needed a cover and someone famous <laughs> on it, you know. She was. Lily Tomlin was hot at the time. But also, this interview with Verna Fields, we are able to realize her background. I mean, she has a strong background in production. She was even teaching at the University of Southern California. She was teaching film editing. Some of her students were George Lucas, John Milius, Willard Huge, who was the writer of American Graffiti. I mean, how crazy is that, that these ones that we view as luminaries in the world of science fiction were being taught by her on how to edit film. That's very interesting. Yeah, so she was um, she was someone who knew her stuff. And she goes on to say this film took a lot of editing because of the special effects and the small budget. And that's the key to a good editor. If you have a s- small budget but you could edit properly, the audience will not know the difference. I have to say, she's fantastic. I didn't realize this was a low-budget film. Everything worked well in the movie. And having, oh, and of course having um, Lily Tomlin work with the ape, too, was a good effect. When she was very small and they had the big ape. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun. All right, we're going to close off by considering one of the advertisements in Starlog magazine. This one is called Starlog Video, and it's a whole list of VHS tapes from classic science fiction. Tom Corbett's Space Cadet, Volume 1 has three episodes on there. Space Patrol, Volume 1 has three episodes. Rocketship XM, Kronos, Flight to Mars, Stranger from Venus. These are all black and white vintage science fiction television shows. Here's the kicker. VHS tapes. 1981 were 54.95 each plus 2.50 per tape. Can you imagine paying nearly $60 for 3 episodes of a television show? Yeah, that's a lot. And and the thing is, well well I mean this was 1981. It was when most people didn't even have a VCR, so I wouldn't have had a way to play it anyway. R- roughly $100 in today's money. Whole different world back then, huh? Yeah, I mean it's amazing how the price of some things has gone down. Well, that's why I say when people say, oh, the price of living is so expensive now. Trust me. It was, if you're a nerd especially, it was very expensive back then. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu, nanu. Nanu.